Well, grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 8, Romans 8. We're going to start a new series this morning uh, looking at this chapter, Romans chapter 8. Um, I like the way Alistair Begg puts it. He says, all of the Bible is inspired, but if we're honest with ourselves, then all of the Bible is inspiring. That is to say that if you're reading through the Bible, chances are you won't make it to Leviticus. And if you do, uh, I wish you the best. If you make it through that, you're going to get to First Chronicles, where it's about 20 pages of genealogies. If you make it through that, then you are among the most spiritual people uh, uh, in, in this world. Right now, all that is inspired, given us, uh, to us by God for his glory and our instruction. But there are certain parts of the Bible that particularly are special, and Romans 8 is one of them. I think it will be worth our time and investigation. Page uh, 1004 in your pew Bibles, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's word. And we are going to read a single verse. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, you probably already have it memorized, even if you didn't know you had it memorized. Chapter 8, verse 1, Paul writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I ask as always as we gather to worship, you would open our hearts, we would receive your word, our, our mind that we would understand it, our eyes that we would see your kingdom and glory, our ears that we would hear and heed your word, our mouth that we would speak the truth of the gospel to ourselves and to, the, to one another and to this lost and dying world, and our hands and our feet that we would go in obedience to Christ. Lord, right now there is a sickness going around that's affecting many of us, including my own family and uh, many who are absent today because of this sickness. Lord, we ask that you would heal those who are sick and uh, for we miss them. And um, we, we love to gather and worship with all the saints. And Lord, as always, we ask that uh, you would draw us to repentance and faith rooted in your word, directing us toward your son. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. May be seated. I have a developing theory, and you can uh, correct me if this theory is wrong or not, but it's something I've been given some thought to for, for some time. Uh, if we were to divide the generations, let's say Generation X and older, and then the other category, uh, Millennials and younger, I, I, I think there is a divide there worth uh, exploring. I do suspect that in Generation X and older, that generation finds the love of God and the grace of God easier to grasp than the judgment and the condemnation of God. On the other hand, I suspect, and I'm an old millennial, so I'm sympathetic to the Gen X cause. I remember TV before there were a thing called remote controls. I was the remote control to my parents. Um, but I am a millennial, and I think from millennial down, I think it's the opposite. I think we find condemnation and judgment easier to understand than grace. After all, I think if you consider how much the culture has changed in recent years, we have transitioned from a guilt culture to a shame culture. Most cultures are one or the other, and we've had a significant Transition from one to the other. What's the difference? Well, guilt culture is defined by a clear agreement to what is good and what is bad. Shame culture is about who is in and who is out. In guilt culture, it is centered on law. You either violated it or you've kept it. In shame culture, it is centered on perception. 
In guilt culture, uh, bad people are punished. In shame culture, people are shunned. Now, you correct me if if my uh, perception of our culture as a shame culture is right or wrong. It seems to be what sociologists, theologians, and others are noticing, that we are buying into shame culture uh, ideas. Thus, what matters isn't if you did something that is right and wrong or if you repented of that wrong thing you did. What matters is, am I in the powerful crowd? Did I post the right things online? Am I using the right rhetoric? Am I self-censoring myself so as not to upset the boats? We are very much in a shame culture, but the problem with a shame culture is there's little to no room for grace. There's little to no room for redemption. If you have been uh, uh, determined to be outside of the camp, outside and unworthy of favor, you are perpetually outside of favor. And so all you can do is stand on the outside and look inside and wish your story was different. And I think this affects us as Christians. We are Christians, but we are American Christians. And if, if we're not careful, we can allow that Americanism to affect our theology, affect our Christian life. And I have found increasingly, particularly among young believers, but all believers, that we walk around with unbearable shame and guilt. We, on the one hand, proclaim, Jesus is risen. Jesus is my Savior. Isn't God great? But if we really get down to it, We carry upon our shoulders a heavy weight. And what we discover is we need more than fame or recognition or to be an insider. What we need is a redeemer to save us. Well, let's start here in verse 1 with the why. The why. And the why comes from a single word, therefore. Now, you've been around here long enough to heard me to say this. I'm sure other guys have come here and say this. And that is that when in the Bible, when you see the word therefore, you need to ask yourself, what is therefore, therefore? And therefore is therefore going all the way back to chapter one. Romans is the most uh, uh, logical book in the New Testament. That is to say that although it's a letter, Paul is driven by logic. It's like a lawyer laying out a case. And so, so you can follow his argument from chapter 1 going all the way down to chapter 16 from one end of the, to, to, to the other. And so we need to see this fluidity going all the way back to chapter 1. And so let me just give you a simple summary of the book leading up to chapter 8 because it's important to understand this single verse. In chapters 1 to 3, Paul indicts us as sinners, all of us, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, we need to note here is that the story you and I are being told by society is the opposite of the story Paul tries to tell us. Society tells us that what is wrong with you, what is happening is outside of you. It could be uh, external stimuli, it could be experiences, it could be fears, it could be your upbringing, it could be hurt feelings, it could be uh, someone using the wrong words around you, whatever it is, a bad economy, incompetent leadership, poor uh, uh, politicians, bad regulations, uh, historical issues, right? It's all, everything bad is outside of me. Paul comes and says, actually, although we recognize evil is external, we talked about that a few weeks ago on a Sunday night, in reality, the root problem is within you. And the word we use is sin. 
And sin is cosmic treason. It is an act of rebellion. After all, think about it. Society is pretty corrupt because it is run by corrupt people. So the external is maybe bad, but explains by the internal. And so Paul tells the reader that you are a sinner. But that leads in, chap- in, ver- in chapters 4 and 5, rather, that although we, have, we are sinners, what we need is a Savior. And again, we see a difference with the culture. The culture is going to tell you that if the problem lies outside of you, guess where the solution is? It's inside of you. So what we need to do is, is, is find the inner spark within us. We need to build ourselves up with more self-esteem. We need to, we, we, we need to find our true identity, this, this inner self that we've been uh, robbing ourselves of, even if that means we have to radically alter the external so that because the internal is always right and just and, 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 and good. Well, Paul would argue otherwise. If the problem is inside, sin, then the solution isn't going to come from the sinner. That makes no sense whatsoever. No, no, the solution has got to come from the outside. What we need is a sympathetic Savior who comes from outside the system, enters into the narrative, and by his life, actions, and power, he saves us. And this is the language of salvation. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, as to that of his nature, flesh, and he dwelt among us, lived a life that we cannot and would never live, died in our place and for our sins, so that by faith and not by actions, because our actions are corrupt, we can be saved. And that's what he lays out in chapters 4 and 5. But then you're left with, what now? Think about it. Paul could have ended the book at the end of chapter 5. After all, he laid out the gospel. You're a sinner in need of a Savior. That's the gospel. Jesus is the Savior. That's the gospel. But he keeps writing. And in chapter 6 and in chapter 7, he's answering the question, what do we do now? Having come to faith in Christ, I have a realization of what a sinner I am. I know what sin is. I know what salvation is. But, but how do I live my life? And Paul here warns the reader There are two extremes that we tend to fall for. One is what we could call libertarianism. The other we could call legalism. And in chapter 6, he explores the abuse of liberty. That is to say that because salvation comes from outside of me and that nothing I do can contribute to my salvation, then it doesn't matter what I do, period. I can do whatever I want. And so because I've been saved from sin, then, then, then I can sin all I want and God's grace is just going to forgive me. That is the sin of libertarianism. It is to say that the, that, that the Christian life, there is no real Christian life. You just love Jesus, whatever that may mean, and you just do whatever it is you want. Paul's argument is a simple one. He says, if you discover that sin in your heart is the problem and you come to Christ and you are redeemed of that sin, why would you go back? It makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. Growing up playing sports, my mother would make the same fundamental mistake every time we played a game. She would wash our jerseys. And then she'd wash our jerseys, and the next game we put them on, they're pristine, maroon and white, you know, uh, Owen County Rebels, and, and they looked good. And what would we do? We'd go out and we would stain those jerseys again. And after the game, she says, I don't know why I bother so much cleaning your jersey. Just go out here and dirty those jerseys. Like, yeah, 
Yeah, that's exactly what it is that we do. Well, that's really what Paul is warning us not to do. Don't be one who comes to Jesus and says, I know I've made mistakes, cleanse me, and then go right back into the mud. Go right back into the stain. Right? Because that is enslavement that brings with it shame and guilt. The other extreme is the legalistic extreme. It is someone who says, I know what sin is. I know the effects the sin has on me and the people I love. I must avoid it at all costs. So to protect me from sin, I'm going to add to grace rules. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't touch this. Don't touch that. Don't say this. Don't say that. Don't hang out with them. Don't hang out there. So we add arbitrary rules that may have good intentions ends up distorting the gospel to something that it isn't. And what you find with legalism is that it will either lead you down a path of pride or despair. Pride says, look how holy I am. Look how good I am. I'm the best dressed at church. I sing louder than everyone else. And my marriage is perfect. My children love me. I'm a good person. That's pride. But what it also brings with it is despair. I keep all the rules and yet I'm miserable. I, I, I have an accountability partner and yet I keep lying to them. I read my Bible and yet it's not doing anything. You hear the despair? In my experience in church life, it's the people who have fallen down the path of pride fill our pews more than those who are struggling with despair because eventually you just give up. That's the context of chapter 8, verse 1. I want you to notice that the main thing we need to see here is that Paul is not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to believers. He's writing to people who have come to faith in Christ. They recognize I'm a sinner in need of a Savior and that Christ is that Savior. I'm free. And then they find themselves back down that same path of condemnation. They're For, he says. In fact, we get a hint of this at the end of chapter 7. Look at verse 15 of chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 15. He says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not uh, do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, but that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. You notice what he's saying there is, is there's the things I want to do. I won't be like Jesus. I don't do them. There's things I don't want to do. That is, not be like Jesus. I do. And he feels the weight of condemnation and guilt upon him. That is why he comes to this crescendo going into chapter 8. Therefore, therefore. See, what is at issue here is not salvation, but fully embracing the benefits of grace. And the benefits of grace, as we'll see in chapter 8, is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's the why. Let's look at the what. There is, therefore, no condemnation. That word condemnation is a significant word. It's used only three times in the New Testament. Very rare word. In fact, all three times are found in Romans. The first two are in chapter 5, verse 16 and 18. The third reference is here in chapter 8, verse 1. It's a courtroom term. What Paul is saying is that having been found in Christ, though the law and the accuser may 
say that we are guilty, we are in fact, by declaration of Christ, not condemned. And so what Paul wants the reader to do here is to believe the judge, not the accuser. Think about it. If, if you've been accused of a crime and you go on trial, you do a whole process. During that whole process, you have this sense of guilt on your hand, this fear that I will be condemned and found guilty. That, that is a significant weight because people start to wonder, well, maybe he is guilty. I read in the newspaper, look at all this evidence. I saw a, a talking head on the YouTube and the TikTok. They said he's guilty. Maybe he is guilty. And so the shame and the guilt and the fear and the anxiety and the worry all comes with it. But when the judge stands up and says, you are not guilty, why would you go home with slumped shoulders and say, well, I guess I'm like Eeyore now. I'm guilty. I'm condemned. Would everyone say you're not? Your feelings may tell you one thing, but the judge has declared something more true. Paul's point here is precisely that. Again, remember the context. This is not about redemption, though it may apply to our salvation. It is regards living in Christ after our salvation. Christians often experience the deeper guilt of sin post-conversion because we are sensitive to the effects of sin. And now that we know that sin is a problem, we feel trapped in this wretched body that can't seem to break free from it. Paul's message is a liberating one. If Christ does not condemn you, why do you condemn you? There is, therefore, no condemnation. Here we must be reminded of the three tenses of salvation. I'm stealing these from Alistair Begg. First, I have been saved from sin's penalty. Secondly, I am being saved from sin's power. Thirdly, I will be saved from sin's presence. Isn't that good news? It is here we must choose the truth of the gospel over the power of our feelings. This is why we must preach the gospel to ourselves. If you know you are not condemned, eventually your feelings will catch up to the truth. Notice thirdly, we've looked at the why, we've looked at the what. Let's look thirdly at the when. There is now no condemnation. I did a lot of research on the, on the meaning of the Greek word now. It means at the present time. It means henceforth. Or to put it more simply, the word now in the Greek means now. There's no hidden meaning there. You don't need a fancy degree to know what the word now means. Let me give you an example of this. In Matthew 27, Jesus is hanging from the cross, and the Pharisees come and say, Oh, look, 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 him who's going to destroy the temple, I tell you what, we'll follow you if you now come down from the cross. Now there doesn't mean 10 days from now. That may work in government, but not in the Greek language, right? Is, is now means now, not a little bit later, not maybe someday, not we'll get to it eventually. It, it doesn't mean after certain requirements and paperwork are filled out and met, right? No, it means now. If you're in Christ, then the promises of Christ and the hope of the gospel are yours now. We err egregiously when we forget this powerful truth. 
The accuser may say things like, you're awful, you're terrible. If only people knew who you were, the thoughts that went through your head, the actions you tried, the history of your past and where you went, the relationships you had, how you've messed this up. And, 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 and you can keep telling yourself that. Or you can proclaim, there is now no condemnation. You tell me which one is more liberating. You tell me which one is more freeing. When the accuser comes, and he comes often, when sin arises, and it does arise, when temptation comes our way, and it will come very often, may we remind ourselves the simple truth. There is now no condemnation. But notice, fourthly, the who. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, with shame culture, cancel culture comes condemnation culture. The only way to escape shame culture is to be part of the right tribe. I'm sure you've noticed this. Some of you may be here thinking, well, I can check off these boxes, but I can't check these boxes. So, so I'm not on the outside, but I'm not as close to the middle as I would like to be. That is shame culture. That is tribalism uh, to where you're one of us or you're not one of us. And if you're one of us, we're not too worried about what you've done because you're simply one of us. However, the language that we may use to do that. Now, one of the problems with a godless cancel culture like ours is it's very fickle and it's always changing. Have you noticed this? Some of us have posted things 10 years ago that were funny. And the same people who are laughing are now condemning us. This has been the problem. Celebrities famous yesterday are unacceptable today. I bet you have watched a television show or a movie from five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years ago. And there's a scene, there's a character, there's something like that. And the thought that goes through your mind is... Dude, that'll never, that'll never happen today. They would never film a scene like that. If a writer presented that to a producer or director, they'd be fired on the spot. Well, because tribalism, that sort of uh, shame culture is fickle. You never know when you're inside or outside. So see here, the issue is that of identity. If you think I'm on the inside of the tribe, I'm safe. But if the tribe identity is always changing, how do you know that you're safe? You don't. You must be firmly rooted in identity of one who has declared you permanently and exclusively not condemns. The good news of the gospel is that we are in Christ permanently. We can trust our ancestry if you want to. We can trust in our racial identity if you want to. You can trust in your upbringing, your voting block, your gender expression, your sexual identity. You can trust in all of those things if you want to. Or... You can trust in one who has conquered the grave. You tell me which one is more liberating. You tell me which one right now, by faith, you say, I don't understand all that other stuff, but I do know this. There is now no condemnation because I'm in Christ Jesus. Throughout the New Testament, Christians are described as being in Christ or with Christ, or through Christ. It's all over the place. In fact, if we had time, we could look at Ephesians 1. We'll look at a dozen examples. I think some of these are in your notes. So let me, let me give you some of what the Bible says about those who are in Christ. First, we are created in Christ, Ephesians 2.10. Crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. Buried with Christ, Colossians 2.12. Baptized into Christ in his death, Romans 6.3. United with him in his resurrection, Romans 6, 5. Seated with Christ in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2, 6. 
Furthermore, we see that in Christ, we are justified, Romans 8.1, sanctified, 1 Corinthians 1.2, glorified, uh, uh, Romans 8.30, called, Romans 1.9, made alive, Ephesians 2.5, created anew, 2 Corinthians 5.17, adopted, Galatians 3.26, elected, Ephesians 1.4-5. You see? In Christ, we have the benefits of grace, but we must trust in the fact that we are indeed by faith in Christ. And in that, we find real liberty. In fact, can I just spoil the rest of chapter 8 for you? Because chapter 8, verse 1 is the big idea. There is now no condemnation of those in Christ Jesus. And then in that context, he speaks of the work of the Spirit in our lives. Notice here, verses 2 to 6, that in Christ we are given peace. Look at verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Notice in verse 9 to 13 of chapter 8, we see that in Christ, the Spirit dwells with us. Verse 9, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. We are adopted in Christ, verses 14 to 17. Look at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. C.S. Lewis is helpful here when he says that the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Finally, verses 18 to 25, we see that in Christ we are strengthened. Though weak, we have his strength. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved, not the hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? And then he goes on, he says, whether life or death, principalities or powers, nothing will separate us from the love of, of Christ. Isn't that a better story? Isn't that a better truth? That the way you feel, or the story you've been told, or the pressure you're under, there is now, no condemnation of those in Christ Jesus. Sexual identity will do none of this. Politics can accomplish none of this. Moralism is too weak to give us peace or to make us righteous. God's presence is our liberty. One of my favorite hymns is Before the Throne of God Above. In the latter verse, it says, When Satan tempts me to despair, and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there. Who made an end of all my sin. Because a sinless savior died. My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied. To look on him and pardon me. Behold him there the risen lamb. By perfect spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Isn't that good news? When I was a kid, I loved camping. Still like the camp. I'm just old. You know how it is. There's a lot of things you like to do. You're just old. And if you had to choose between doing the things you like to do and not doing the things you don't want to do or do want to do, you would choose just not to do any of the above. Let's be honest. I am knock, knock, knocking on 40's door, okay? And I like to camp. I do. And uh, I, there's certain burgers I like to make when I go camping. Uh, we used to do flash, flashlight tag. We went camping. It was great. A buddy of mine had his large farm. We'd go out there, and we'd get lost in the woods. There's a creek. we get our water. And we did everything that, that we wouldn't tell our parents that we did. I loved camping. 
And one year we went and it was cold outside. It was like it is now, where it's 550 degrees outside during the day. It is under 6,000 degrees at night. It's spring or fall, right? That is Kentucky. And, and so it was warm when we first went out. It got real cold that night. And like men, we didn't check the weather. And the way our camp was set up is you had the fire that we built, which is the coolest thing to do. You had your fire, and then we had like little places we'd sit, rocks or whatever it is that we found. And outside of our, that little camp place was our tents. Well, it got really cold. And at first we told ourselves when we finally went to bed, oh, we'll be fine. We got sleeping bags. So we went from being close to the fire into our tents, and it wasn't long before we were freezing. And one by one, each of us grabbed our sleeping bags, grabbed our pillow, and we all scooted close to the fire. Why? Because the closer you are to the fire, the warmer you'll be. The same is true with your spiritual life. If you're here today and you convince yourself you are guilty, the weight of shame is overwhelming you. And you don't know what you're going to do, how you're going to get through the day. The weight is simply too unbearable. Can I encourage you here this morning? Your problem is not your feelings. Your problem is not the culture. Your problem is not what's happened to you, your experiences or anything like that. I'll tell you what your problem is. You're standing too far away from the fire. The closer you are to Christ freer you will be. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, in the early years of Christianity, it was illegal to be a Christian. Particularly under Marcus Aurelius in the second century, there were pockets of persecution around the Roman Empire. And one bad pocket was in Vienna. There was a deacon there by the name of Sanctus, who had been arrested and was being tortured and accused of a lot of nasty things that Christians were often accused of in the Roman Empire. They were accused of being incestuous. After all, they, they call even their husbands and wives brothers and sisters. They were accused of being cannibals because they ate the body and drank the blood of some carpenter's kid. They accused of atheism because they wouldn't bow down to the Roman gods. They accused of treason because they wouldn't recognize Caesar as Lord, but some stranger named Jesus as, as Lord. And so they would be tortured and abused and oppressed. When Sanctus was, was asked a question, didn't matter what it was, what is your name? What is your place of origin? Who are your family? Do you recant? He would always answer with the same thing. I am a Christian. Every time. And they, they, would, they would torture him with, 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 with uh, uh, hot uh, uh, iron and everything else to where his body began to fade away. And every time he would say, I am a Christian. We get the story of Sanctus from an early church historian by the name of Eusebius right in the 3rd century. Can I read you the story of Sanctus from Eusebius' pen? Sanctus, too, endured all cruelty with superhuman courage. Although the wicked applied persistent tortures to wring something wrong from him, he resisted with such tenacity that he did not even tell his own name, race, city of origin, or whether he was a slave or free, but replied to every question, I am a Christian. Therefore, the governor and the torturers were eager to master him. And when all else failed, they finally pressed hot, red-hot plates of brass against the most tender parts of his body. These were burning, but he remained steadfast in his confession, refreshed by the water of life that flows from Christ. And what would he say every time? I am a Christian. 
Can I read to you how Eusebius finishes the story of Sanctus? I want you to pay close attention to what he says. His body was a witness to his torments. It was all one wound, mangled and shorn of human shape. But Christ, suffering in that body, vanquished the adversary and showed that there is nothing to fear where the Father's love is and nothing to wound where Christ's glory is. You see? Marcus Aurelius and the governor can say condemned. And he would say, I am a Christian. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to me. I don't know what your story is here this morning. Maybe you're lost. You've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. I beg of you to come to the cross. Come to Christ and you will find there is no condemnation. There is freedom from your sin or forgiveness of your sin, cleansing of your shame. Would you come? Or maybe you're here and you've walked the aisle, you've gotten wed, you've, you've filled out the membership card, and you even show up on business, meaning you're so spiritual. And yet, here you are with a weight of sin because you're too far from the fire. I'm going to ask you to come in repentance. I'm going to ask you to come, rededicate your life, so that you will know for certain there is no condemnation to those in Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I ask you to be so kind as to help us in this regard.